0: Hello, and welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 57. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, we've got a bit of a longer story than usual for you this week, so I'm going to hop right in. It's a very different sort of story than the type of thing you may have come to expect from The Drabblecast. It's a fairy tale set in ancient China called The Tiger Fortune Princess by Yuji Foster. Yuji lives in a mildly haunted, fae-infested house in metro Atlanta that she shares with her husband, Matthew, and her pet skunk, Hobkin, Her fiction has been translated into Greek, Hungarian, Polish, and French, and her publication credits number over 100 and include stories in Realms of Fantasy, The Third Alternative, Cricket, Cicada, and Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show. This story was originally published in issue number 7 of Paradox Magazine and received an honorable mention in The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, 2006. Visit her online at www.ugfoster.com. So, without further ado, The Tiger Fortune Princess by Yuji Foster. In addition to being as beautiful as a lily, the Empress of China, Mei Ying, was considered wise beyond her years. She honored her ancestors piously, burning fragrant incense and offering elaborate feasts up to them at every holiday, and thereby brought harmony and goodwill upon the Imperial Palace and all of China. When the auguries informed her that she was pregnant with an Imperial daughter, she was careful to read only soothing works of poetry, look at pleasing colors, and guard herself against outbursts of bad temper, so her child would be sweet-natured and wise. As was the tradition, she had a soothsayer cast her unborn baby's horoscope. But as the final brushstrokes were laid on the paper, a servant girl was distracted by an errant flash of sunlight and spilled tea on the fortune teller's composition. This angered the soothsayer, who demanded the girl be beaten for her clumsiness. But the young empress would not allow it. The soothsayer narrowed her eyes and added an unlucky four more strokes to the tea-splattered paper, transforming the fortune into a curse. "'Your daughter will die unborn unless she rides the dragon's tail,' she hissed. "'If she survives the dragon, she will be devoured before she meets her husband, and without a son-in-law, her father will die of unhappiness.' The Empress furrowed her brow. With careful courtesy, for she would not harm her unborn daughter by changing the alignment of her own chi energy with an act of vengeance, she gave the soothsayer an envelope of money and escorted her to the palace gates. As she watched the old woman stump away, the Empress folded the fortune into a tiny square She shared the fortune with no one, not even her husband, for that would give the words greater power and attract the attention of evil spirits. Returning to her bedchamber, she hid it in a jade locket carved into the shape of a leaping tiger. Despite the inauspicious words of the soothsayer, it was still a favorable year to have a baby, the year of the dragon. No matter what else, the child would have dragon virtues health, bravery, and splendor. Time passed, and the date the midwives had declared as the most promising for the princess's birth came and went. The empress did not fret. She brewed special herb teas and tutored her mind to dwell upon serene thoughts of lucky red fish swimming in sparkling waters and the perfect tranquility of white clouds floating in the azure sky. Your daughter is too much in love with the womb, the doctor said. Nonsense, the empress replied, and when they had gone, shaking their heads with disapproval, she murmured to a rounded belly, I know waiting is difficult, my dear one, but do not listen to them. And she continued composing another devotion of patience to read to her unborn daughter. Days melted away like sugar in the rain, until it was the day before the new year. That morning, the empress had all the servants bring her scraps from their clothes, and sewed these with her own hands into a patchwork coat. The servants looked at her as though her mind had taken flight, but the empress knew the coat would confuse any malicious demons. She draped the rag coat over her gravid body. Today is the last day of the year, the very tale of the dragon, she announced. No sooner had these words left her lips than a great pain, like a burning needle, ran through her body. She cried out, and as morning strolled the path to afternoon, her daughter, Wen Su, was born. The servants ran to attend the child, but the empress waved them away. She checked the baby's heartbeat and smiled when Wen Su took her first breath and expelled it in a lusty howl. She was healthy as a dragon. "'Welcome, my daughter,' she said, and thank you for your patience. To hold her daughter's soul to the world, Empress Mei Ying tied a tiny silver lock around the baby's neck with a bright red string. Then she bundled her up in the coat of rags and left the palace.' Mei Ying's husband, the Emperor, watched them go with his heart drowning in a lake of sorrow. But why must you leave? he said. I cannot tell you, but I have my reasons. The Emperor trusted his wife, so he had no choice but to let her go. The Empress took Wen Su to live in a tiny cottage deep in the countryside for she knew that bad-luck demons would never think to seek out a princess in such humble surroundings. As further precaution, she stitched lucky red cloth in Wen Su's clothing to protect her from illness. She tied tiny bells on her ankles and wrists to frighten evil spirits away, and she looped a wide ribbon around her ankles to keep her steps steady so she would not fall and hurt herself. And every day, she begged the ghosts of her ancestors to protect her daughter. Wen Su grew up to be as graceful and clever, and as splendid as her birth year promised. Even garbed in peasant rags, her beauty shone like a second sun. Her skin was as fair as the shining clouds her mother had contemplated in the palace, and her lips red as crimson koi and her black hair fell to her ankles in a glossy waterfall. On Wen Su's eighteenth birthday, a mounted servant from the Imperial Palace came to the door of their humble cottage with a racing horse saddled and in tow. My lady, he panted, the Emperor is gravely ill. They fear he will die. Mei Ying grabbed up her mantle and swung onto the prepared horse. I must go to him. But mother, why? Wen Su asked. The empress took off the jade tiger locket she had worn for eighteen years and gave it to her daughter. I have taught you and protected you as well as I can. Come to the imperial palace with your husband when you find him, my dear one. Your father's life and the empire of China depend upon it. And in the drumming of galloping hooves, she was gone. Wen Su opened the locket and read the tea-smeared words of the soothsayer, and so discovered her regal identity and her fated doom. She began to cry. The ghost of Wen Su's great-great-grandmother, who was well pleased at all of the offerings Mei Ying had burnt to her over the years, was close enough to hear her weeping. Why Why are you you crying, crying, granddaughter? granddaughter? she asked. I do not want to die. Some events must happen as they must, and others, well, there may be allowances. Dry your eyes. You are the future of the Empire, and you have a husband to summon. Wen-Sue dabbed the tears away with the corner of her sleeve, for she was as brave as she was beautiful. How will I find him? Do as I tell you. Put the fortune back into the tiger, Jade is a powerful stone, and the tiger is fierce, and he will continue to protect your best interests. Next, take an apple and enclose him within it, and cast both into the river. The tiger will return to you with a husband. When Su did as her ancestor instructed, she took an apple, gleaming red as a priceless ruby, and as large around as a crane egg, and cut a sliver from the shining fruit. She ate the slice and affixed the locket in the white gash. May my soul take flight with this apple and bring my intended husband to my side. She threw the apple into the river, and as it flew from her hand, it was as though the world spun and she lifted into the air. For so long the fortune had been a cloak over her spirit, needing but her ascent to become one with her soul. When it splashed into the water, it seemed that the sky covered Wen Su's face and flung her down into an endless horizon of deepest blue. She sank down as though she were dead. Prince Kuan Yin and his huntsmen were riding along the shore when the prince felt fingers tweaking his hair. Unseen by the prince, these fingers belonged to the ghost of Wen Su's great-great-grandmother, The prince turned his head in annoyance and saw what he thought was a ruby floating on the sky-blue water. He watched it and it grew from the size of a robin's egg, then a magpie's, and then finally a crane's. And then he saw it was not a ruby at all, but an apple. He fished it out, and as soon as his fingers touched the firm red skin, he was overwhelmed by a great hunger. Without pausing, he took a bite of the fruit. Curiously, he found he was even hungrier after swallowing it. He took another bite, and this time his teeth caught on something. It was Wen Su's jade tiger locket. Prince Kuan Yin opened the locket and read the fortune. His heart stumbled as he read the description of the beautiful princess, and his face darkened with grief when he read of her terrible fate. The need to rest his eyes upon the princess's loveliness blossomed in his chest like a flame-red orchid, putting even his hunger to shame. Without telling his companions of his intention, he turned his horse to follow the river. The prince rode without pause until the sun god, Rhi, resplendent in the white robes he wore to salute the dawn, had exchanged it for the somber saffron robes he wore in preparation to greet his wife, Yu the moon. In the cinnabar light, Prince Quan Yin saw a vision, bright as a shining cloud that had settled to earth. As he came closer, he saw that it wasn't a cloud, but a maiden with pearl-white skin. Her hair wreathed her in a gleaming blanket of night as she lay on the riverbank, and her lips were as red as cherries. It had to be she, the Tiger Fortune Princess. He knelt by her side. Princess!" To his great sorrow, she was not breathing. With trembling fingers, he opened the jade locket and extracted the fortune. Reading the terrible words again, he crumpled the smeared parchment in his hand and tore it to shreds. But his despair was not assuaged, so he popped the whole thing in his mouth and swallowed it. As soon as the paper passed into his belly, Prince Quan Yin's strange hunger was sated and Wen Su opened her eyes. The prince found himself staring into eyes as dark and mysterious as the most precious plum wine. Did my tiger bring you? She asked. Indeed he did, the prince replied, and he gave Wen Su back her locket. And did you fight off the monster that was going to devour me? The prince grinned. No, beautiful one. I ate the fortune. It would appear that I am the devourer. Wen Su considered this. You have eaten my soul, then, for surely it was trapped within that cursed parchment. And so I must return a soul to you the only way that I may, by giving you mine. Marry me, and our spirits will be one. Wen Su blinked and then smiled. A laugh, bright as a golden bell, pealed from her mouth. The lower tones of the prince's laughter swirled into the sky to join and mingle with hers. The next day, they rode with all haste to the imperial palace, where Empress Mei Ying watched over her ailing husband. As soon as they burst into the bedchamber, the emperor's sickness lifted from his soul, and he sat up, healthy and strong. Who is this whose presence heals me better than any doctor's balm or tincture, he demanded. Princess Wen-su bowed. I am your daughter, Wen-su, and here is my husband-to-be, Prince Kuan Yin. The emperor embraced his lost daughter and welcomed his new son. There was much rejoicing, and everyone in China was happy, except for one old soothsayer, who complained always of mysterious fingers that pinched her and pulled her hair so that she was forever mottled with bruises and quite bald. And never did a holiday go by that the imperial ancestors were not fated and praised for their compassion and wisdom. Well that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. I mentioned earlier how this story was different from the usual story we have here. I might have misspoken. We really don't want there to be a usual story here. I love being surprised by a good twist ending or being torn over a grinding conflict as much as anyone else, but I forget sometimes how enjoyable it is just to feel comfortable in a story and savor beautiful details, mood, and imagery. Well, before we get into feedback, I want to take a second to plug two phenomenal TV shows that kicked the bucket, but that you can still hook up with on DVD. The first was an ABC series, Masters of Science Fiction. This show was great for so many reasons. Top actors, directors, and writers. Big budget, great effects. They even had Stephen Hawking hosting this show. It wasn't without a few flaws, but even so, you got to admit, it was pretty cool seeing science fiction reach so many people in such a big way. The second is a show I'm catching up with now on DVD called Masters of Horror that ran on Showtime. Here, some of the big horror names like John Carpenter and company got together and produced some of the grossest best horror I've seen in a while. I'll link to both these shows in our show notes. You should definitely check them out. So, double feedback this week. First, episode 49, Heart to Heart by Chris Kastensmith. Mixed response here. GE Lee said, I thought the feature story was pretty funny. It usually brings a chuckle to see the conventions of the fantasy genre examined through the lens of real-life common sense. Feeburn said, The main story did nothing for me, just passed the time. The production and voice acting were good. I think this is another example of a dialogue-driven story that fails the show don't tell rule. Anne Savoy said, "I enjoyed the shared narration. It worked really well with this piece. The story was entertaining, but I saw it coming a mile away. So the production saved this one for me. I do plan on having more guest narrations on the show. There are already some fun plans in the works." Then we had Trifecta Two, a collection of three short stories that included "Chi" by Greg Van Eekhout. Headroom by Tom Williams, and Performance Anxiety by Weldon Burge. DKT said, I did love the original Trifecta, and I hope we hear more of them. But for the most part, this batch left me groaning. Kevin Anderson said, Performance Anxiety was just great. I'm currently potty training my son, and now, every time I look at him on his plastic commode, I can't help but wonder what he's thinking. Good boy! no worries, we plan on doing a trifecta every 10 to 15 episodes or so. Well that's all for this week. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means you can't alter the content or sell it, but you can burn a copy on CD for all of your ancestors. Join our forums and comment on the story at www.drabblecast.org. And if you want to help support the Drabblecast, you can donate to us via the button on our website to help us pay our authors and such. Our staff is made up of Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that you keep head in clouds and your friends think you are life of party. And your lucky numbers are 877 This is for Pedro the Stitch, and this is for running us out through the cops. You filthy son of a bitch, but just then the doors busted open as the crook stood exposed and again.